after the prosecutor asks uh, his or her general questions, the defense attorney will have a chance to ask questions. And of course, the defense attorney is trying to do the same thing the prosecutor was doing. The defense attorney is trying to build some rapport with the jurors, uh, making the jurors comfortable with the defense attorney. And the defense attorney is trying to figure out which uh, of the jurors might identify with either the defense attorney or uh, the uh, defendant. Let's take the, the example that we were using earlier of the shoplifting. Uh, let's say there's no video. Uh, what is the uh, defense attorney going to be looking for? Well, he's probably going to be looking for some technical people, uh, some engineers, some computer people who understand, hey, uh, the larger stores, they have cameras everywhere, so why in the world do they not have video? Uh, if there is video in a shoplifting case, why are you going to trial? Does a video not show you doing what it is that they say that, that, that you are doing, why are you going to trial? Um, and that's important because if there's a lot of evidence against you and they can clearly see it's your face on the video, they can clearly see you picking up items and putting them in your pocket, if you made a full confession in loss prevention, there's no reason for you to be going to trial. Your attorney's not a magician. Uh, if they can see it on the video, your attorney has a real problem. Let's say there is no video. Uh, but there are co-defendants that are going to testify uh, against you or uh, against uh, the defendant in the case. Um, if, in fact, there are co-defendants that are going to testify against you, then you need some jurors who have adolescent children who understand that their adolescent children might not always pick the best of friends and that their adolescent children could get themselves in trouble because of the selection of their friends. If you get jurors who start to think like that, I have, well, I have an adolescent uh, male teenage son and he picked some friends and, and maybe um, uh, he didn't pick any good friends. I don't want my son to be charged with shoplifting because of the selection of his friends. That's what your lawyer is thinking about when he asks the jurors different questions and he looks at the demographics uh, of the jurors that he's questioning. Let's say that uh, there's a child molestation case uh, and there is uh, no confession on videotape. If there's a confession on videotape, why are you going to trial? You're just hoping against hope? Okay. Uh, it's your constitutional right, uh, but if in fact there is no video, uh, your attorney is looking for people that may be able to identify uh, with your situation. Your attorney is looking for folks who in fact um, can identify with the lawyer and can see themselves in a similar situation. Maybe they, maybe those folks that your defense attorney is looking for uh, as jurors, those folks are in fact going to hold the, uh, the prosecutor to a very high standard. Um, that's what uh, your defense attorney uh, ultimately is looking for. Um, once uh, the general questions are done, the prosecution and the defense attorney begin what's called individual voir dire. And what happens is uh, they'll start with juror number one and the prosecutor will ask them some questions based on the responses that they got from uh, the general questions and will ask them some questions based on uh, the written responses in terms of where they live and how long they've lived in the area. Uh, the prosecutor can also ask some questions about some of the uh, answers that the juror gave to the defense attorney. The prosecutor is not limited to only the questions that he asks of the jurors and the answers that he got, but he can also ask and do some follow-up on the questions that the defense attorney, in fact, asked the, uh, asked the jurors. Then, then the, the defense attorney will have an opportunity to also ask uh, some questions of the, uh, of the jurors, and they'll go through 
all 35 or 40, depending on uh, how many people get eliminated and depending on how many qualified jurors you need, each individual juror will be asked questions. Typically at the end of a set, a set might be 12 people or 14 people or 15 people, the judge will ask the, uh, the prosecution and the defense, is there anyone you'd like to strike for cause? Those are normally kooks. Uh, kooks that give real weird answers. Have you ever been the victim of a crime? Yes, witchcraft. Um, uh, and people say, oh, what in the world? I don't, the beauty is after 10 years, I don't need to make up much. Uh, I've seen a whole lot. Uh, you're trying to get rid of all the kooks. You're trying to get rid of the, 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 the single woman who's 62 years old who has six cats. Uh, you're trying to get rid of the people who talk uh, real strange. Anybody that's just too odd to be on your jury, that's when you uh, go up uh, in front of the judge and, and you say, listen, this person is either they got some medical problem uh, that won't allow them to sit, or worst case scenario, they are telling you they cannot be fair. If they can't be fair, you need to get them off the jury. Um, you may not even need to ask them a whole bunch of questions, but you need to get them off the jury uh, ultimately as soon as possible. Now, when you get to that set, a uh, set of 12 people or 14 people or 15 people, uh, the judge is going to ask your attorney, does he have any uh, strikes for cause? Uh, and that's just people he wants to eliminate because they can't be fair. I say kooks. Uh, you know, anybody that hasn't heard any evidence in the case raises their hand and says they can't be fair or uh, basically lives with eight cats. Those are kooks, and I'm trying to get kooks off my jury, just to be quite honest with you, because I'm, I mean, ultimately, as a defense attorney, I'm playing with my client's life, and I don't want my, my client's life in the hands of kooks. <clears throat> um, there are some people, I can just tell you, and sometimes they're not always going to be candid about it, jurors, who ultimately think if you, as a defendant, are sitting here waiting for a jury trial, there must be something to the charges. There are people that feel that way, and some of the people that that uh, will raise their hand and say they don't think they can be fair or reveal to you an individual for idea that they don't think that they can be fair. Um, I look at those. I don't just necessarily just strike those people. I mean, yes, my, my antennas go up and I'm, I'm normally um, leaning towards striking them, but I'm still going to ask them some questions to determine you know, are, are, could they possibly be fit. I'm always going to do it from the point of view of leaning to eliminate them, but I'm going to ask them some questions. I'm not just going to categorically uh, eliminate them. Um, <clears throat> the reality with, uh, with uh, causes for strikes is your lawyer wants to eliminate as many unfavorable people as he can before he has to start using what is called peremptory strikes. Every jurisdiction is a little bit different. In the jurisdiction that I'm in right now, uh, we have uh, the prosecution has nine peremptory strikes and the, and the defense attorney has nine peremptory strikes, which means if the judge doesn't feel as if a, a juror has given weird enough answers to strike them for cause, the attorney can use his peremptory strikes. And the lawyer has nine strikes, and he can use the nine strikes on anyone he wants to, except that he cannot use the strikes to eliminate somebody solely based on race or someone solely based on their gender. There's laws that ultimately prevent that, uh, but uh, that's ultimately what the what the uh, what the peremptory strikes are for. Now, clearly, at this point, you know we're talking about. Uh, going to jury trial, but we've spent a lot of time on jury selection. Jury selection is so 
crucial. It's difficult for me to put. Um, uh, it's difficult for me to put uh, a, a weight or a value on how important jury selection is. Some people say it's the most important thing. Uh, there's a lot of debate ultimately between attorneys about uh, who should be left on a jury and, and who should go. And there's always going to be some debate about that because selecting a jury is. Uh, a lot about the art of selecting a jury as opposed to the science of selecting a jury. If there's ever a time not to be talking to your attorney uh, about uh, 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 who Michael Vick is going to be playing for in the fall or um, what's going on with the weather or what's going on with the oil spill, it's during jury selection. Your attorney needs to focus all his or her energy on the selection of the jury. They need to be paying attention to the answers that the jury's giving and making sure that they follow up intelligently on the answers that the, that the jurors are given. Um, <clears throat> after, in fact, uh, you have a qualified number of jurors, uh, let's say that that number is 30, what then happens is you begin the, the, the art of selecting a jury. And it's sort of a misnomer when they say selecting the jury because the selection of the jury really comes off the peremptory strikes. What does that mean? It means that a list of the potential jurors is going to be handed over to the prosecutor. The prosecutor then makes a decision on juror number one. Does he want to use a peremptory strike? If he doesn't want the jury, he uses a peremptory strike. They'll show the page to the defense attorney and they'll give the paper back to the, to the prosecutor to actually exercise maybe his second strike, especially if you're going from 1 to 30. Um, and that's the, there's different types of ways to pick a jury also, but if you start with number one, you go down to number 30, the prosecution has the first opportunity to uh, use their strike to eliminate somebody. If the prosecution does not use their peremptory strike on number one, juror number one, but the defense attorney does use his peremptory strike on juror number one, juror number one is out. Uh, and then the paper goes back to jury, to, to the prosecutor to uh, debate juror number two. If the prosecutor likes juror number two, he doesn't use his peremptory strike. The, the defense attorney uh, may not like uh, juror number two, but he, he uh, dislikes others even more. So he won't use his peremptory strike on number two, and number two becomes juror number one. And you go down the list of that. Number three, no strike for the prosecution. Number Number three, no strike from the defense attorney. That becomes a, a juror. Number four, prosecution uses a, a, a peremptory strike. That person's out. And they do that, uh, the prosecution and the defense, until they come up with 12 people plus the one alternate. Once the 12 are selected, they move over to the jury box uh, and they get ready for opening statement and evidence. The prosecutor makes his opening statement first. He outlines what he believes the evidence is going to show against you. The defense attorney ultimately follows up. In many jurisdictions, the defense can reserve an opening until the beginning of the defense's case, which means the prosecution makes an opening statement, the defense attorney reserves the right to make an opening statement, and then the prosecution puts on its, its whole case before the defense attorney makes an opening opening remark. Um, is that, uh, when would you ever use that? Well, there are times to use that, uh, reserving opening statement. When? The defense attorney's not sure in an armed robbery case if the prosecution can prove that the defendant was actually present or an aggravated assault case, even better example, the, the defense attorney's unsure if the prosecution can prove that the defendant was there. Well, the, the, the defense attorney then shouldn't argue self-defense 
if the prosecution can't even prove that the defendant was there because ultimately once a defendant the defense attorney says oh by the way my client uh, was defending himself well he puts the client there something that he may not ultimately need to do um, in the shoplifting case as we were talking about earlier um, the opening statement from the prosecution is going to be cut and dry. Uh, that guy over there took some stuff, didn't pay for it, done and done. Child molestation, uh, when you hear the, open, the prosecution's opening statement, you might be looking around saying, who's he talking to? It's really a character assassination. The prosecution is going to be trying to uh, appeal to the, uh, the emotions of the jury. Uh, they're going to be calling you a dirtbag and not so many words um, because it's a child molestation. Uh, and uh, there's going to be plenty of dramatics mixed in with the facts. Uh, after the defense attorney gets up, if he chooses to make an opening statement, he makes an opening statement, and after the defense attorney makes an opening statement, the first witness is called. Uh, plaintiff, uh, prosecution, is going to put up the first witness. They're going to talk about daytime location. They're going to talk about what occurred, and uh, if they are meant to identify you as a defendant, they're going to point over at you, and they're going to identify you. Uh, the defense attorney is then going to have an opportunity to cross-examine that witness. You may have seen a little bit of this. Uh, if your attorney did a, a pre-trial motion with the police officer, you may have seen a little bit of this. If you've seen your, def your defense attorney uh, represent you at a preliminary hearing or any type of prior hearings, you may have seen your defense attorney already do some cross-examination of witnesses. Um, after that first witness testifies, the defense attorney is going to cross-examine uh, the witness. And when the defense attorney cross-examines uh, the witness, the defense attorney is going to use um, a number of different statements that the witness has made in the past to cross-examine the witness. Um, <clears throat> what's the first statement that uh, the defense attorney can use? Well, it's the trial testimony that the defense attorney just heard when the prosecution was asking the witness questions. That's one. What's the second one? Well, the second statement that, that your attorney can cross-examine a witness on is the first statement made to the responding officer. What's the third statement? Well, the third statement might be the statement that the witness made to the investigating detective when he made a statement. Uh, what's the fourth statement? The written or recorded statement that was ultimately made to the uh, to the investigator. And then, of course, there's any contradictions in those four statements. Second witness, same thing is going to happen uh, as the first witness, depending on what the second witness is going to talk about. Uh, the last witness in the state's case is typically going to be a police officer um, or responding officer in a shoplifting case, and it's going to be a detective if it's a, if it's a child molestation case. Uh, either one of those officers are going to try to summarize everything and pull everything together that uh, the jury has heard from earlier witnesses. Uh, one of the problems in this situation, um, which you'll see and which uh, hopefully your experienced uh, criminal defense attorney will, will know is going to come, is the, the witnesses that go last for the state and summarize everything may ultimately add some things that a witness has said who testified earlier. Uh, and that testimony is hearsay, but there are many judges who will allow the testimony of a prior witness to come out through a detective 
uh, even though it is hearsay, and the rationale is that you, as a defense attorney, had an opportunity to cross-examine the witness about that statement when they were on the stand earlier. Even though they didn't talk about that portion of their statement at all, even though you didn't question them at all about that portion of their statement, uh, the police officer may be allowed to get into ultimately that portion of their statement. Uh, and that is where hiring the cheapest attorney did not serve you well. Um, an experienced attorney can anticipate what is going to happen, what's going to come later, later questions uh, that are going to uh, be put to the investigator, that are going to uh, harp on some things that the witness said that uh, the defense attorney never questioned the witness about. That's why you don't hire the cheapest attorney. You need to hire the, the best attorney for your jury trial. Um, and also an experienced attorney will know, in fact, uh, how to use one witness, one state witness, to disprove what another state witness uh, actually uh, said under oath or actually uh, testified to at a prior time. There's just an art to that. So even if you as a defendant have absolutely no evidence, a skilled defense, a skilled defense attorney can use the state's witnesses to impeach one another and actually make your case uh, a lot stronger. Um, after the state closes this case, the defense will have an opportunity to present any witnesses that they want to call uh, on behalf of the defendant. Uh, typically, character witnesses, people always have a whole bunch of questions about character witnesses. Character witnesses will often uh, not be called unless you have no prior convictions. If, if you uh, and or the defendant have a number of prior convictions, uh, typically character witnesses will not be called because if a character witness is called and they put your character in issue, the prosecutor has a right then to go into your criminal history. Uh, and it is extremely hard uh, in a child molestation case to beat a child molestation case when the jury finds out that you in fact have a prior aggravated assault irrespective of the, of the details of the aggravated assault. That just, that, that doesn't sit well with the jury and that makes it much tougher on your defense attorney to defend your case. Uh, here's one of my rules when people ask, well, we can subpoena a witness and we can do this and we can do that with a witness. That's true, you can subpoena a witness, but if in fact you have to subpoena a witness and drag that witness to court, uh, that testimony is probably not gonna be that great. I like to invite people to court they show up, and then when they need something to show their job, I'll give them a subpoena so they can go back to work and say, hey, look, I had to go to court. But if I have to give them a subpoena and get the investigator to chase them down, go in and ask the judge for material witness warrants and threaten to lock them up, then that's probably ultimately not going to be a good witness for my client to rely on. In terms of fact witnesses, just to let you know, a fact witness, a person that can testify about what they saw, heard, tasted, touched, or smelled, a fact witness, in fact, are only as valuable as your trial attorney's ability to get facts from them. That's it. And that's really what you need to know going into trial. Your witnesses are only as good as your attorney's ability to extract the necessary facts from them in order to persuade the jury of your innocence. Um, and typically, the defendant testifies last, and, the rule, and that rule is very rarely broken. The defendant testifies last just in case uh, there is, in fact, uh, a mistrial. Um, if there's a mistrial and the defendant has not testified, fantastic. Uh, 
there's, uh, when you do a retrial, for example, there's nothing uh, for anybody to present in regards to what the defendant has said. If, in fact, you, uh, you do a trial and you testify first on behalf of the defense team and then there's a mistrial, well, the prosecutor can use your statement uh, that you've made in that first trial in your second trial as evidence against you because you took the stand uh, and you were cross-examined. Uh, and so that's typically, I believe, I believe nobody's ever told me why that rule is, but, but uh, in, in the abundance of caution, I believe that that rule is implemented to make sure that defendants do not um, uh, put themselves in a position of providing testimony only to have that testimony bite them in a second or third trial if there is, in fact, a mistrial.